think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 35 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 36th episode. Uh, we are back after a brief illness, um, but now uh, at full strength, or near, nearly full strength, as we uh, approach the new parliamentary session that will begin at the end of uh, January. Yeah, I think the House comes back on the 28th, and the Senate comes back a day later on the 29th. Indeed. So it's been reasonably slow in political news um, against the status quo whilst the House is in session. So uh, in light of that, we'll talk about some of the stories that have happened uh, over the last week or so. And then uh, next week, we think we'll probably do a a sort of legislative look forward at the coming session. Sure. Uh, But we want to start with a case, the curious case of Joshua Boyle, um, which is sort of started, it got to most people's consciousness in the fall when um, Joshua Boyle was returned from Afghanistan with his wife. You know, that actually did not get as much press coverage. It got a bit. It got a little play, but it did not get a ton. It did not get a ton. It got some, uh, at any rate. So he was a... Uh, Tim, do you want to explain the story? I think you probably know this better than I do. I know it roughly. Um, he was a Canadian who took his... Well, yes. <laughs> who took his pregnant American wife backpacking in the hills of Afghanistan. As one does. Uh, and then was captured um, by, I believe, the Taliban. It was the Haqqani Network, actually. But was he captured by them or was he handed over? I actually don't know the specifics I, I don't know. here. Well, you're just muddying the water. As now. per uh, Bo Bergdahl. Uh, uh, this he was captured by the Taliban and then handed over to the Haqqani network. I think I is see. how that one played out. Yeah, I, th- I just think the worst thing the Haqqani network does is continually air old reruns of All in the Family. Is that is that what the Haqqani <laughs> network does? Um. So I think it's sort of a bizarre set of circumstances. I think anyone who examined that um, has deemed this to be an incredibly bizarre set of circumstances. Um, there's also background on Boyle himself, had sort of a strange love of terrorism and the history of terrorism, and uh, had married Omar Khadr's sister at some point. Whom he appears to have met through Wikipedia editing. Yeah, so the National Post did... Which, you know what, congratulations to him. Not many people can pick up through Wikipedia, <laughs> but... <laughs> no, uh, clearly, so the way the National Post story told it was that she started editing her own Wikipedia page, and he said it was against the community guidelines, and then started to chatter up, and then eventually that classic, married her. That classic romance story, you know? Yeah, one certainly for the history books. Um, all of this is to say, the Boyle incident reignited over the holidays, uh, for two reasons. Well, just before the holidays, there were some published photos of Boyle um, in a meeting with the Prime Minister, mm-hmm. um, which I never saw in national media. I only saw it on Twitter. Um, particularly conservative Twitter circles were sort of raising questions about it, saying, why are you meeting this guy? And then they really exploded a couple of weeks later um, when it was reported that Boyle was facing a litany of charges for... A variety of crimes. Yeah, it was pretty long, Ranging actually. from assaults to confinement And administering to, a noxious substance. Yeah, yes. all, all sorts of things. There's a publication ban on, um, I believe, some of the victims in that incident. Um, all of this is to say, the big question that came out of this was one of the Prime Minister's judgment. Um, to say, why did the Prime Minister meet with this individual? 
And was this maybe a horrendous idea? And what went wrong along the way? So I think it's worth talking about how you get a meeting with the prime minister. And so some liberals, uh, i.e. Warren Kinsella, uh, let's all reference his piece. He wrote a blog post about how you get a meeting with the prime minister. And he told an anecdote of when he was on the street with Jean Chrétien and they were walking by and they stopped by happenstance to talk to a homeless man. And the RCMP around them were really edgy, but the homeless man ended up being like a jolly guy and they, they had a laugh and then it was good to go. And he, John Cotian gave the guy like 10 bucks or something. And he, he uses this as a defense to say like, anyone can meet the prime minister. Um, these things sort of happen, et cetera, et cetera. You should just dismiss this. Um, I look at it and I remember going through the meeting vetting process for the minister I worked for and Typically, it's a very rigid process. There's what typically uh, offices have what's called the calendar meeting uh, under various names, which is where you go through all the invites that you'd received, largely political invites um, from various stakeholder groups and community organizations, X, Y, Z, and you raise them and you discuss them and you debate them based on availability, based on merit, based on political saliency. And you choose the ones you want. And if, it's, say, a group you're unfamiliar with, you go and you research that group. And if it's something you're on the fence with and you're not really sure, you can always ask your civil servants. And so civil servants, uh, this is one of the services that they provide to ministers' offices, is you can send an invite down to your civil servants. Uh, generally, it's through secretariat services, to be precise. And they will task it out and get a recommendation on from the civil servants onto whether or not you should take that meeting. You don't have to do this process, but generally it's a good thing to do. Yeah, if you're curious, especially, I suppose. Yeah, if you're curious or there's the political complexities about. or if it involves, um, generally if it involves international government, mm -hmm. um, so another country's government, then this is how you go through more formal channels rather than just sort of a political stakeholder that you want to meet. Okay. Um, so this is to say that there are potentially very rigid processes in place to get recommendations from independent civil servants as to whether or not you should take a meeting. Um, I don't know if the prime minister, particularly this prime minister's uh, procedure is comparable to that of a minister, but I can imagine that PCO, that, that is the Privy Council office, weighs in on effectively every meeting the prime minister takes. Mm -hmm. I, I would be stunned if they didn't have their thumb or their finger in that pie a little bit for everyone just because of the role and significance of the prime minister is so much more than the significance of ministers taking sure. meetings. Yeah. Where although ministers are, you know, crucial functions in our government, the amount of media profile that any given minister has is actually relatively small relative to the prime minister, yeah. like dramatically smaller. Well, even even like outside of the civil servants, even I feel like just someone in PCO would stop to think about is this picture going to look good when it pops up on the news, right? And I think Boyle's case had enough sort of red flags from his return and even before the circumstances of his capture that people would have been, I mean, in the interest of caution, it would be best not to take this meeting, you would think. 100%. Yeah. You would look at the background of this and the fact that Boyle, like on, on the merits of Boyle being the former husband of Omar Khadr's sister, who is a non-repentant 9-11 uh, supporter and things along these lines. Like, that alone is a big enough red flag to kibosh any meeting. 
Like, point blank, end of story. Discussing whether or not the RCMP knew about this. They probably didn't. Like, the meeting. I doubt that the RCMP... So, the protective detail generally... I don't think is in the um, business of vetting individual meetings unless yeah. specially tasked for that. This sure. this instance perhaps may have merited that. Yeah. Um, we can debate whether or not it happened. I think it's somewhat immaterial. I think just at the political and the public service level alone, there should have been ample red flags that this should have been quashed. Yeah. Without even looking at our security services. Yeah, and I, th- I mean, like, obviously, like, the the impact is at the end of the day isn't huge, but it just, it raises the question of why did no one <clears throat> raise any flags about this? And unfortunately we'll, we will never know unless someone talks about it because you cannot do an access information request to lo- learn about this or anything. So there we, there we go. Yeah. That I, mystery uh, will, will remain a mystery. So it's, it's something to consider uh, Trudeau's team. So I, I mean, the opposite side of it is that you look at why he took the meeting mm-hmm. and why did he take it? Because there was a presumed political upside. You don't have a PMO photographer in the room for a meeting unless you want to publish those photos and do a press release yeah. and sort of claim victory or brag about whatever meeting I mean, you it had. was a return of the hostage, so, I mean, Which know, that's is great, notable, right? but Joshua Boyle is no Amanda Lindau. Yeah. So, the instinct for PR here overrode the instinct for common sense. Yeah, I think so. And even then, I think that the PR thing hasn't even really worked out, so, oh well. Yeah, that, that's, guess, uh, that's why I said I only saw the photos circulated via um, conservative circles, yeah. not... not praised in mainstream media so i think it was a failure by all involved well now we know uh next big story is of course uh, our favorite office the office of the conflict of interest and ethics commissioner uh who mary dawson has uh gone to the angel well you know retired not uh, not <laughs> died <laughs> not died just to, just to be clear um but her replacement has been appointed and she's 75 years old she, she is old, she i think she wanted to retire years ago yeah i think so but uh anyway so the, the new commissioner is a uh, mario dion who is a, a longtime public servant uh, appointee to various high level boards i think we discussed him a little bit last week his background but uh, so he, he has entered office and uh, with a bit of a bang, I think you could say. Yeah, um, I think that's fair. A Globe and Mail piece on, on him uh, from about a week ago um, read, um, excuse me, uh, the new federal ethics commissioner says he won't be bound by the way his predecessor interpreted the law and is open to discussing stronger penalties for ethics violations. And the quote here is, we're not bound by what Mary Dawson has interpreted in the past. You start from scratch, essentially, from a legal perspective. This really had us kind of scratching our heads. Isn't this insane? It's pretty crazy because while we've lamented some of the bad precedents that Mary Dawson has set, if you are a public office holder who leaves office and you were following the rules according to what interpretations of the current conflict interest and ethics commissioner when you were in government um, was there and then you leave... And then a new one comes in and says, hey, actually, the behavior that you thought was fine because it was cleared by the previous commissioner actually wasn't, and I'm now going after you, which they would have no, you'd have no statutory defense or, like, defense on the, the grounds of precedent to say. But what, what about these past cases? What about this? No, all that's bad. out the window. Yeah, I mean, like, perhaps in that case, they would just exercise some restraint and not go after you, but... 
all the same, I think this is like not so really Ma- good. Mary Dawson was the first and only conflict of interest commissioner, as of course her office was created during the Harper years. And so during that, she she had a number of cases and investigations where you know a certain amount, uh, as as well as sort of memos to the public. Uh, a certain amount of precedent and sort of standardization was built up mm-hmm. and expectations. Well, now the definition of friend might change again. So yeah. who knows? Yeah, The definition of friend, uh, direct and significant dealings. Yep. What constitutes significant? Who knows? Yeah. It's completely <laughs> up in the air again. So throw out, <laughs> what the hell? Throw out all your old reports. They're worthless now. <laughs> yeah. Like this makes absolutely no sense it's to me. It's pretty wild. So... Especially, like, I can see him saying, like, there's a, maybe a select few where I disagree with her on, and I might be re- revisiting those, but he just completely threw it to the wind and said, yeah. like, it's all gone. Yeah, which is, I I don't know, I think that's pretty baffling. Um, and, like, will that be the case for future commissioners? Like, we don't know, because he seems to have just sort of decided that this is how he's going to do things, but, yeah... Um, it kind of opens up a can of worms because I think usually the, the precedent for any kind of like office with quasi-judicial authority based on common law principles is that stare decisis, right? Like you just, you, you let sleeping dogs lie and you adhere to precedent. But like, I love when you use Latin. Uh, well, that's really lawyer Latin. It's not even like real Latin. <laughs> um, but yeah, like it, it's pretty, it's pretty nutty. Anyway, uh, do you have anything to add on uh, on Mario Dio? Like besides that, like it's pretty big, obviously. But uh... well, I think there's just a couple more points while we're on the uh, the ethics beat. Um, the first one being that on Mary Dawson's last day in office, she um, put out a ruling or a sent out a letter that Bill Morneau was cleared on a bunch of the right uh, purported conflict of interest uh, violations. Um, but it left a couple on the table. That's right. So I believe it cleared him of, you know, stock sale and all the ones around the sale of his Morneau Chappelle stocks prior to the tabling of the bill. And I believe, and he's already been slapped on the wrist for the French Villa thing. So what remains outstanding is, uh, his involvement in putting together C-27. That's which correct. Which is the pension. And so that is an investigation that's going to pass to... Um, or that has now passed to Mario Dion. Um, the last point I would make is there was a, a clip that was circulated on social media of Justin Trudeau is doing, you know, the town hall circuit right now. Oh, yes. And at one of the um, town halls he went to, uh, a citizen got up and asked uh, Justin Trudeau about the breaking of the criminal law, or I can't remember quite how she phrased it. Uh, You're the first prime minister to, to commit a crime. Yeah, convicted of committing a crime or something. Yeah. Well, in office, and Trudeau's first response was pretty fucking sassy. It was said, what crime was that? And he was. it's sort of the response when you know that the person has said something wrong and you want to pull them yeah. on that technicality, right? Yeah. Because, it's well, not technically part of the criminal code. Yeah, well, yeah. he broke federal law. He did not break the criminal code. Yeah. But this then led people to look at the criminal code mm. and pulled out a section of the criminal code, specifically 121.1, um, which reads, it's it's about corrupt officials, uh, and 121.1c reads, being an official or an employee of the government directly or indirectly demands, accepts, 
or offers or agrees to accept from a person who is dealings with the government a commission, reward, advantage, benefit of any kind uh, for themselves or any other person unless they have the consent and writing of the head of the branch of government that employs them right. or of which they are an official. Yes. So on the basis of public information, it really does seem, especially with a handy 70-page report from Mary Dawson, that Trudeau did, in fact, break this. Yes, and it's unclear who writes his permission slips. And so we tweeted at uh, uh, the Docket co-hosts, uh, Michael Spread and Emily Tamman, host a legal podcast, uh, what's presumably mere blocks from where we are. Um, and ask them in their lawyerly opinions what they made of this. And they, they were sort of of the same opinion that on the basis of the findings, it seems probable or it seems possible that this yes. was, in fact, a violation of criminal law. Yes. Not to say that it would necessarily be prosecuted in this instance, but maybe. Indeed. The, and uh, for me, the real question here is who writes the prime minister's permission slips? I, I think that's a very fine question because it states... Uh, you need the head written... of the branch of government, and so if you are the head of the branch of government, yeah, I don't know. Do you have to write your own permission slip? That's called the stranger, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, it does open up the the quis custodiet question about uh, who will watch the permission slip writers themselves. Who watches the watcher? Indeed. Um, so, anyways, in, interesting angle. No one uh, beyond I, I've, that I've seen conservative Twitter has been talking about I think the. Linda Frum talked about this. Yeah, Senate, yeah. Senator Frum. Yeah. Um, conservative Twitter again was at the forefront. The second worst Frum. <laughs> in your mind, yes, I think most people would agree. I I, I just think it's an interesting uh, interesting question to put out there and worth uh, worth acknowledging. Yeah, so I I don't think anything will really come of that, but it is kind of funny at the very least. And you know what? We're we're here for that. Here we are. That's that's fine. Uh, actually, a fairly big piece of news this week um, was the news of Unifor, the, the private sector union. In fact, Canada's largest private sector union. What's a Unifor? the union anyway unifor is withdrawing from the canadian labor congress which is a sort of umbrella organization of canadian unions uh, public and private sector this is really big because as i mentioned uh unifor is canada's biggest private sector union it's canada's single biggest individual union i believe and uh given that we're a country with not terribly terribly high union density to begin with uh, a split here is is pretty bad in terms of it, it divides organizing efforts uh, lobbying efforts, you know, for various kinds of uh, labor-friendly laws. Um, so what was it, what was at the source of the split? So there's two points of contention. The first is about Article 4 of the CLC's Constitution. Of course, is, Article 4. Yes, which is about um, what's called rating. Uh, and it, it concerns... Like the, the, World of Warcraft, not like quite. LAN Party. Not, not quite. So um, basically, it, it affirms the right of members of unions to freely determine as a local what union they will be affiliated with, which is fine. I think everyone can can think that, you know, if you don't like the representation you're getting from your parent union, that you should have the right to go to another one. That seems like, I don't think anyone would really disagree with that. The problem is that Unifor has been, from what I hear, fairly aggressive in trying to raid or poach uh, other locals from other unions which is kind of frowned upon to like actively go out and try to do this yourself because 
given once again that we're an economy with fairly low union density. It's too much free market. People would prefer that you organize new workers <laughs> rather than fight over the scraps. Wait, so to is, speak. is the pro- is the problem too much free market too much. in the labor movement? Is that no? It's too just much that, competition. It's basically that a lot of like the CLC has been a little frosty about this because a lot of their member unions are unhappy about it because Unifor is taking their quote-unquote rating their members um so that's been a point of contention so Unifor has decided to take its ball and go home on that issue and also on in another article of the constitution which governs the relationship between Canadian unions affiliated to American-based internationals um that's more of an arcane point, so I don't think I'll, we'll go into it too much. Uh, but it concerns, for instance, um, the union of uh, hotel workers in Toronto and the um, transit workers as well that are part of the uh, Amalgamated Transit Union, which is uh, based in the U.S. And there was basically just concerns about uh, the Canadian local not getting a very good deal from their international so there were once again Unifor was kind of involved in that. So anyways, it's kind of it's pretty arcane. Uh, so what I thought was interesting here it was sort of some of the procedure stuff that I saw popping up on Twitter mm-hmm. was people talking about. Uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. The CLC president was a member of Unifor. Yes. So they are not sure if he will be able to continue, though it seems like he will, just because nothing's happened yet. But um, I- because basically you have to be a member of a member union to be. You know, an elected official in the CLC, and the CLC president was a Unifor member, so it was. Uh, but Unifor is splitting from a union which one of its members was the president of. No, the Unifor is withdrawing from the CLC, which is the umbrella organization of all the unions. Sorry, yeah, sorry yeah, yes, yeah. not uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, umbrella organization versus a union. Gotcha. Yes, yeah, yeah. The CLC is not itself a union, um, so it's it's pretty messy, um, and also a lot of the district uh, and yeah, the district labor councils. Uh, which are basically sort of like the the local branches of union political decision making at the sort of like regional level. Uh, all Unifor members will have to withdraw as members of those boards, which is like a big deal once again because they've tended to do quite well. Unifor has been well organized at the district level and also at the national level. They they do quite well on the boards. Another like partisan political implication of this is that Unifor is a descendant of the Canadian auto workers, and as have continued their tradition of advocating strategic voting since the late 90s um, when the CAW started doing that. Uh, so, And the rest of the CLT tends to be more NDP friendly. So in the sense, there might be a silver lining in this for the NDP in that they'll have a CLC that is more likely to want to get involved in pitching in, in elections rather than having yeah. this big block that is less prone to doing that. So I remember there being some drama here a few years ago in the strategic voting of union sense in that the NDP, if I'm not mistaken, withdrew their staffers who are quasi-unionized from their union because their union was advocating voting liberal in the yeah. 2015 federal election. Yeah, there were some some messes along those lines. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, union politics and labor generally doesn't really get covered very, very widely. There's been some coverage of this, but I'd really recommend giving a look at rankandfile.ca if you're really interested in a labor perspective on labor issues. Uh, just want, They wrote a really good piece on this in particular that I would... Sorry, what is rankandfile.ca? It's like a union news and okay. labor-oriented... Run by... Presumably, people interested in labor. Okay. I don't know. I just read them from time to time, and uh, the piece on this in particular is very good. And if I remember, I will link it in the notes. Um, 
So he'll probably forget. He's not going to remember. I, I usually forget. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I just thought it's a pretty big story, actually. I mean, if for labor, like I said, it's not our labor movement is not that that strong in this country. And to split it, to, to take the biggest single private sector union out of there is, is a big deal uh, and might affect, you know, labor's orientation politically and economically going forward. So we'll see what happens. But it is it is a pretty momentous happening. Okie doke. Okay. I'll take your word on it. Indeed. Uh, all right. Next up is um, our fearless leader, Jake Mead Singh. Oh, I just so I just want to be take a minute to be critical of uh, Jagmeet. I was actually an early supporter of Jagmeet. Mostly um, you gave me, I think. Right? And, and no, before I think it was before <laughs> I even knew you. Uh, just based on you know persuasion from friends, and I, I think I said at one point early in the early episodes that I was a proponent of fighting fire with fire when it came to Jagmeet Singh's leadership. Um, and since then, I have, you know, become disenfranchised from him, so to speak, as much as one can become disenfranchised. Disillusioned. Uh, or, yeah, perhaps disillusioned is equally good. Um, but, I mean, fundamentally, I wish him all the best because we require a strong third party to give the conservatives the best chance they possibly can. So, in that vein... I've been very disappointed with his, you know, strategy and media presence thus far. Um, and the latest one uh, is his, the media around his proposal. First of all, congrats on getting engaged. Um, super duper. I, I don't know what, what you say to someone really when they get engaged. Yeah, no. Um, best, best wishes. Yeah. Um, putting that aside... The presence of media was one thing that a few people discussed. Aaron Weary had a piece on CBC that I think expressed a lot of my feelings and our thoughts, which is to say, I thought when there was the initial hubbub about him getting engaged a few months ago, he asked more or less for his privacy. To go from that to inviting the media and then doing a photo shoot in what looks like a photo booth, where there was a backdrop with flowers and candles on the ground and a lantern and all of these things. It seemed really, really, like, maximally staged. And then throw in the Canadian press photographer, and then you are at, you know, a 700 on the scale of staging. Um, and I thought it was weird. Um, it's a little celebrity-esque, which isn't typically something you see to that extent in Canadian politics. Um, that typically Canadian media uh, generally has a good precedent of staying outside of the personal lives of Canadian politicians. Mm -hmm. um, things like marriage and children and divorce typically aren't covered by Canadian media, and I think that's a good thing. I think we benefit from that uh, relative to our American neighbors. So I personally didn't really like the precedent of inviting photographers to major life events of politicians. Weird. Um, and then the second thing I would layer on would be the attempted data mining effort by the NDP <laughs> on... Uh, if, if you've ever signed a card for a politician online that solicits yeah. your email... To be fair, though, everyone does this for everything, right? Like, it could be like... Justin Trudeau is getting a new dog. Sign the card to say, welcome the new dog. Like, that's, it's just like whatever. For 
anyone will do it over the slightest pretense to do some data mining. And you're right, and my party does it, and the liberals do it, and your party does it. Andrew Shear got a new pair of dad pants. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, maybe it's just... Like, I see birthdays as, like, you know, whatever. Andrew Shear like, bowled a perfect 300. <laughs> but I just see, like, an engagement as perhaps a, ne- a level above a birthday card. So as an attempted data mining effort, it just strikes me as a little more gauche than usual. Well, I mean, no one, this is it's the first engagement in the modern fundraising and digital data <laughs> era. So. I mean. Who knows? Did Nikki Ashton raise, like, I, I guess that's perhaps a comparable opportunity uh, during the NDP leadership I race. actually don't remember if she tried to data mine off this. Uh, I don't, I bet you she did Off her announcement. I bet I you. Know. Of her children, did she get married during the campaign as well? No. No? No. But she did announce that she was pregnant. I don't, I honestly do not remember if there was a data mining effort around that. I cannot imagine there would be. Like, I would be surprised. I'd be surprised. Like they're very different. They have very different personal styles, though. Yes, yeah. and so all, all this to say, one never sign a card for a politician. They, they, they will, ne- they is, will not see your nice dedication. They will just take the phone number and email address. And never do it. Send you emails forever. And, and I guess I'll leave it there. Okay, you wanted to talk about a private members bill. Yeah. So this is a new segment. Uh, I was hoping we would do periodically, especially when you know it's a little drier in terms of content. Um, and that's to raise the profile of some private members' bills, be it for good reasons or for malicious reasons or for the sake of hilarity, because sometimes they're actually, you know, very funny. Oh, of course, there's the classic that one of our profs at um, the political manager program mentioned, which is that he was responsible in part for making the Canadian horse the official <laughs> horse of Canada. Uh which apparently was contentious because the Bloc MPs uh, did not want the Canadian horse to be the official horse of, of Canada, but there you go. So, and, and I mean, this is a heavy part of any, par- or not a heavy, but a, a reasonable part of any uh, parliamentarian's responsibilities, and also something staff deal with and often put together in conjunction with the folks of uh, in Parliament, in the parliamentary administration. Uh, and so, kicking it off, I thought I'd pick a legislation... Uh, near and dear of, to your heart. A piece of legislation near and dear to my heart, uh, which is C three fifty one. So you just you have a, you have a thing about that number. Three fifty one. Yeah. C three fifty one, which was tabled on April, I think, of this year, and currently remains April at of last year. Or sorry, yes, there was. Got to got to change the number. Uh, yeah, New Year, uh, April of last year, and uh, has sort of been part of the conservative free the beer campaign, and it was tabled by none other than. I do not know who that is by sight. Yes, you do. Uh, I still don't know who that is. Just tell me, John Barlow. And uh, John Barlow's legislation uh, amends the intoxicating, uh, the importation of intoxicating liquors act. I see. And now you ask, what does the importation of intoxicating liquors act do? The importation of intoxicating liquors act, aside from being a mouthful, it is is the uh, I think it's prohibition era legislation that effectively sets out the 
um, division of powers between the federal government and the provincial governments in terms of liquor regimes to this day. And what it basically says is it says um, liquor is banned from importation and banned from, you know, a dozen different things unless it's under a provincial regime. Okay. And so the sale of alcohol is exempt from that because it's under a provincial regime. Sure. Um, this is also the legislation that uh, my boy Como uh, came into conflict with, and part of what his Supreme Court challenge was regarding is regarding the Importation of Intoxicating Liquors Act because it sets out the authorities that provincial governments then use to prevent the interprovincial trade of alcohol. Mm-hmm. And so what John Barlow's legislation does, or proposed, I guess proposed legislation, um, would amend the importation of uh, or would amend the beer component of it okay. to allow individuals to sell and uh, trade beer across borders and bring beer across borders. Seems very weird to me to only do that for beer, to be honest. So actually, if I'm not mistaken, him or another conservative MP actually did it for wine some time ago. I see. Um, and I'm not really clear on the details. I think uh, the wine-related legislation passed in 2011. It was probably prompted by stakeholder groups at the time. Said, let's do some wine things. So they went and they did, and they passed a wine one. I think it's been held up a little bit on the provincial end, who have not been eager to relinquish their power. As they tend to be. Um, but the intent was to do this again and now with beer. I see. Um, so that you could drive over, in, in our sake, to Costco to pick up that 24-pack of delicious Boreal lager that I know you crave. Indeed. The um, best one. Or, and so that's that's where it would apply to Como, the other case where it would apply would be direct uh, purchase from breweries. Oh, I see. Okay. So and you could so, then ship. So you could ship directly to consumers, okay. circumventing... The provincial labor regime. The provincial, no, also known as nonsense. The provincial nonsense. Um, so cool, Bill. I uh, I support it. Godspeed. I don't think the liberals are going to support it. It's sad at first reading, likely to die on the order paper, as many of them do. As and I mean that's not atypical for private members' bills. No, the vast, vast, vast majority of private members' bills fail. Um, but certainly a useful legislation uh, that we need. Does this segment also um, taking? Can we submit motions? You can you can pick whatever you want. Okay. Keep private I'll, members, I'll keep motions, for... private members, bills. Take your pick. I'll keep an eye out for fun. Federal ones. or provincial? What? That's, um, that's too broad. We don't want to get into. Uh, t- t- I mean, if you want to pick a quirky piece of legislation from PI Parliament, you can. You're more than entitled. Fair enough. Uh, you also had an update to give on pot regulations. Uh, <clears throat> to say that they are progressing. Um, since we last spoke. Um, a couple more provinces have released their regulatory frame, or typically their cannabis frameworks for cannabis. Cannabis frameworks for cannabis. Yes. Um, most recently, Prince Edward Island. Okay. Um, if anyone cares, came out with more details. Um, most significantly, perhaps, was Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan. Am I mispronouncing? You that? are. Yes. God damn. Yeah. Uh, Saskatchewan came out with more details of theirs, and theirs is particularly interesting because of the political climate they're in. Yeah. Um, so Brad Wall is uh, no longer premier in a week. Yes. Um, and God, that soon. I was actually expecting. Yeah, I think oh, I think wow. the vote is next Saturday. I have no real clear sense of who's going to win that leadership race. To be Appa- apparently, it's a four-way. Uh, sorry, a three-way race. Yeah, that's that's what I've heard. Um, and then I'll mention one of the candidates in a minute. 
Um, so the most interesting thing, Saskatchewan took sort of a, a the, perhaps the most free market approach in Canada, um, which is to say that along with private sale of cannabis, they also went with private wholesale of cannabis, which is huge. It's actually going to be more liberalized than the accompanying liquor regime. By significant margin. Not only the accompanying liquor regime, but Alberta's liquor regime. Yeah. Because Alberta's wow. liquor regime... Doesn't allow for private wholesaling. Doesn't. Right. Uh, uh, wholesaling is run by the government, but in practice it's contracted out. Yeah. Um, but, and, and like in practice it's, you know, it's very token. But here on paper it will be more liberal as it will have private wholesalers in charge. Wow. And the significance of private wholesalers is if you have... Uh, private wholesalers of cannabis and uh or sorry public wholesalers of cannabis and private sellers then there can be a bottleneck at the wholesale for saying what products get into the private stores mm -hmm. it's all determined still by that public monopoly yeah and so that public monopoly can make deals with growers in their region or xyz where in a private uh wholesale environment it's a hundred percent wide open. Mm -hmm. I think it'll be limited in terms of the number of wholesalers and you know who gets approved by the government to wholesale. But for all intents and purposes, it will be the most liberalized cannabis and or alcohol regime in the country. Which is funny because the public consultations they had, this was not really the prevailing mood that they got. Uh, a lot of people supported selling it at pharmacies. Something like on the order of about a quarter supported selling it only through pharmacies. So that's about forty odd percent supported selling it through public stores, and then about the same, a slightly higher proportion through private stores. So it was a plurality of opinion, but not a majority. And there was a strong sentiment that was pro public, and an even more regulatory one that was pro private pharmacies. So the the first issue I would take with that is one pro pharmacy makes absolutely no sense. It's a bizarre I am just included because that was a significant yeah, response. The, the inclusion uh, of that I think it's weird, in but any of the options is always weird because pharmacies if they are to be in the sale of cannabis. Well, it's a waste of everyone's time. Well, they should be in the sale of medical yeah, cannabis exactly. and not recreational cannabis. Yeah. And so going to your shopper's drug mart for your recreational cannabis well, it's a waste of everyone's time. Makes right? like, sense it's like it's in no one's model. Pharmacists who have better things to do and people in line who need drugs that they actually need. And so... Right? Like, it's just a bad model. This this is one of the things the cannabis market is moving towards. Um, right now, the current uh, model for medical sales of cannabis is direct from the grower, typically, mm -hmm. or the cultivator. Um which the mean farmer. the farmer now cult cultivator is the they really should go with farmer they're uh, gonna have a much better uh, <laughs> PR battle for on their hands if they than do. cultivator yeah uh, I'm just a simple marijuana farmer cannabis cannabis yeah they prefer cannabis eh is the um, direct sale from licensed producers effectively LPs and so uh, pharmacies have been pushing especially this week in Quebec the pharmacists went to the Assemblée Nationale. Uh, because they're doing their hearings on cannabis legislation. And they said, we would like to be in charge of medical cannabis sales, which is outside of the scope of Quebec's federal or Quebec's provincial cannabis legislation. Sure. Yeah. But they somehow wanted Quebec to ask the federal government to spend, spread the word or something. It, it was sort of bizarre. Um, but it's likely to come down the pipes in the next year or two, um, especially once cannabis legalized. They're seemingly, it seems pretty likely that um, the government will extend purchasing or, uh, sorry, sales licenses to 
um, pharmacies. Hmm. Um, some pharmacy groups, i.e. Shoppers Drug Mart, has already moved to make licensing agreement yes. with major producers. So I'm sorry, I'm sorry to draw you off track with the pharmacy thing, but you mentioned that you want to talk about one of the SAS party leadership candidates. Oh, just to say that on, on the cannabis file, particularly Ken Sheveldayoff, um, I think I have that name right. It's yeah, a very unconventional People call him name. Chevy, just Chevy short. Um, is the leader in terms of fundraising dollars. Yeah. Um, and I believe the MLA for an East End Saskatoon constituency, okay. I believe. And from what I've seen of the limited polling that's been done in the race, I think it's only been done by candidates. Um, there is effectively a statistical tie for first place, and he yeah. is one of them, and he is the most social I, he's, he's on record saying yes. i uh, will be the least friendly cannabis um premier in canada effectively yeah uh, which is sort of an interesting contrast to the most liberalized province that has now set it up yeah but what saskatchewan hasn't announced yet is their minimum age of consumption mm-hmm. and so their minimum consumption age 65 <laughs> <laughs> if they set it at 25 which is what a lot of healthcare workers for instance it would create this hilarious contrast between the most liberalized market and the most restrictive age, yeah, purchasing age. That's funny. So, so something to watch, and we'll we'll have a better sense of it uh, about this time next week. Yeah, and I, we'll probably talk about the last part of the ship race at that point because uh, we we love talking about Saskatchewan politics here, Woo! or I do anyway. So, um, what speaking of provincial politics, actually, I want to take a quick detour to Quebec um, because the PQ is having. Uh, some trouble this week. What, what's the PQ? The Parti Québécois, uh, which is, of course, for our four listeners who live in a cave and our holdouts <laughs> from the Second World War still have, have not heard of the Emperor's Surrender. Um, the Parti Québécois is, of course, Quebec's leading sovereigntist party uh, formed in the 1970s. It is the nationalist left-wing party. Yes. Well, you know. It's the Nationalist Party, anyway. Um, <laughs> Taking issue with the left-wing characterization, I see. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, they have been in the past, certainly. I think their current incarnation is much less so. And actually, I think this is an interesting thing, is uh, three members of the National Assembly this week have announced that they're either retiring or uh, not running again. One of them is uh, Nicolas Cloutier, who is a two-time leadership candidate and two-time second-place finisher. Um, first against Pierre-Carl Pelladeau. When he kind of came out of a crowded field and really distinguished himself as he's, he's a younger politician. He served briefly as a junior cabinet minister in the Marois government uh, between 2013-2014. I think that's right. 2012-2014, I guess, actually. Um, and generally ran fairly left-wing campaigns for leadership based on a fairly aspirational platform by PQ standards. Um, and is has announced that he is not. Uh, going to be running again and might actually be retiring from the the National Assembly to go do other things. I mean, he's like in his 40s, so not like retiring, retiring. Yeah. But I think it's really well, worrying for the PQ to be losing talent that good. So um, wh- why? Why are they losing talent? I think he literally said like he's like losing hope. <laughs> Some, <laughs> something along those lines. Hope in the party or hope of the party's electoral chances? I think chances? probably a bit of both. Uh, Jean-François Lisée has not been a terribly effective leader thus far. I He's been kind of a culture wars firebrand more than a very effective either leader of the party on economic issues. And that's really where the liberals are most unpopular is the no one really likes their economic management. You know, people point to, you know, reasonably good fiscal management in the sense that they, they have a surplus, so, you know, no, no more deficits, which is, you know, it's fine. Um, 
It's fine. They've been reasonably <laughs> fine. Downplaying that one a little bit. It's fine. The economy in Quebec is doing pretty fantastic. It's doing pretty well. Yeah, no, it's, it's fine. It's just like there have been a lot of cuts to services, a lot of unpopular changes, especially to health and consolidations and that kind of thing, especially in the Montreal area. Um, nurses and doctors are very angry. They don't like the health minister, which is never a good place to be when you're a government. Um, so certainly there have been. It's been mixed, right? Their economic and management record has been mixed. Um, so there'd be a space for kind of a left-wing party. They've been, the liberals have been in power for, I believe, like 15 of the last 17 years, I think, something along those lines anyway. They've been dominant for over a decade. Um, so you'd think in a normal province, the voters would be ready for a change. And it does seem like that is the case. The Coalition Avenir Québec, a kind of upstart party uh, that is nationalist but not separatist, unless you ask it on the right time, in which case it is, What's or under full moon. The CAC. The CAC. The CAC, which is led by a former PQ uh, minister. I forget what he was minister of, to be honest. Um, François Legault, um, who also founded Air Transat and is a sort of, you know, successful businessman, what does, politician. What does Air Transat translate to? I think it's just, that's just it. I mean, transatlantic. No, it's Air Transit. No, it? it's Transat, like transatlantic. Uh, Not transit, like a bus. Okay. God damn it. Uh, at any rate... Uh, they, they are currently much higher in the polls than the PQ. The PQ is at a pretty disastrous kind of hovering around 20-25%. Um, so it could be very bad for the PQ the next election. We will see. Coalition Avenir Québec is at the front of them. Uh, Québec Solidaire, the sort of other left-wing nationalist party, uh, is kind of nipping at their heels. Um, there is an NDP supposedly leadership race <laughs> yeah that yes. leadership race wraps up next week as well um so yeah it could be really tough for the pq they're kind of getting eaten on all sides uh on left-wing nationalism by quebec city on left-wing grounds by the ndp we'll see what happens with that and on sort of, sort of like cultural nationalist grounds by the cac so they're in a pretty bad spot to have very talented politicians like Coutier sort of abandoning ship at his age is a really bad sign for the party, I think. Um, and they've kind of been flailing for direction for the, most of the last decade. So I think not not a good news story for them at all. And any thoughts on, on Quebec politics from, from you, Tan? You know, not really. Not really? Um, coming from Alberta, I've always been a little behind the eight ball on uh, Quebec politics. But I remember when I worked for a minister in Quebec and I had to learn Quebec politics as I was campaigning in Quebec... As well as Quebec media, it was just a whole new world had opened up it's, to me. It's a different ballgame, yeah. It's like right-winged talk, French talk radio in Quebec City, and like just, it's a completely different world than what we're used to in just the English media bubble. Yeah. And it's just really interesting to see, like from, from the media perspective, that right-wing talk radio is so prevalent in Quebec. Yeah. And very, very popular. As are like these programs, like Tout le on uh, Radio Canada yeah. is like something that people gather around the television and watch with their families and it's like was make or break for uh, Jack Layton. Jack Layton. Famously, and yeah. Is what has been skewering uh, uh, Melanie Jolie. Melanie yes. Jolie. It's, yeah, it's that's, nice that's when you right. finish my, my sentences <laughs> for me. That's been skewering Melanie Jolie in Quebec. So it's just, <laughs> it's a whole different world and to anyone who um, doesn't actively pay attention to it or has never really looked into it, it can seem so very foreign. Indeed. So, um, 
that will that will do it for us this week. Also, actually, we'll do our beer review first. Woo! We forget uh, it sometimes. We do. Well, actually, last week, to be fair, last week we did not have one because we recorded early in the afternoon, and we didn't have a beer, so. I, I was hungover as well. Oh, that was why, too. Yeah. But what do we have this week, Ken? Um, so it's the Chocolate Manifesto uh, by Flying Monkey. always support a good manifesto. <laughs> yeah. Uh, perhaps the most communist-sounding beer I've ever drank. Actually, the Bolshevik bastard. Bolshevik yeah. bastard is probably the exception <laughs> yes, to that. From Nickelbrook. Um, so yeah, so it's by Flying Monkey, which is located in. I honestly have no idea. Barrie, Ontario. Oh, I think it's Barrie, home of Patrick Brown. And who else? Who's the federal MP? No idea. Come on, you know this. I don't know this. Not off. Not offhand. Big guy, sporty. Oh, Alex Nuttall. Alex Nuttall. Yeah, hell yeah, Jock Caucus. Um, so the chocolate manifesto is a triple chocolate milk stout. It's uh, it's a Christmas seasonal beer and it is one hell of a chocolatey stout. It's, it, it's, I mean, it is not lying about the chocolate part. That is for sure. It's made with uh, forest garden shade grown cacao nibs, Ooh. roasted whole cacao powder and chocolate malt. I see. It uh, is very, very chocolatey. So it's a super chocolatey beer. It's a dessert beer. I first had it last year. I think it came in a 750 mil bottle. Woof. Um, but they've now downgraded it to a 473 mil bottle. I think because of how sweet it is that yeah. a lot of people, you know, couldn't, can't get through a bottle. Yeah. Couldn't finish the bottle. Um, and it's 10% ABV, oh, wow. uh, which is actually high enough that you can't sell it in a grocery store. Interesting. Um, in Ontario, which hmm. has a 7.1 ABV limit. I did not know that. Yeah, fun facts. Yeah, that's pretty good. Um, if you like chocolate. And you like stouts, which you probably do if you like stouts. I do like chocolate, um, and I do like stouts. <laughs> it's pretty good. I, I'd recommend it. Yeah, it's very good. It's like a seasonal one. It comes in a little box. It'll probably be gone in a month or two. Yeah, so, so yeah, get it while you can. Anyway, so that will do it for us this week. Uh, as always, you can follow us on at short, on Twitter at, at shortpantspod. Uh, you can yell at us on the same place. Uh, also, in other news, I wrote a piece for activehistory.ca. Uh, I'll be honest, I'd never heard of Active History before. Yeah, it's sort of a blog for historians and, and, you know, about sort of history with contemporary implications. I wrote about uh, Quebec secularism. I thought it was a pretty good piece. You can go read it there. Uh, and that that is it, really, for, for us this week. So enjoy enjoy the weekend. Get out there. Go do some, some skiing or skating or whatever you do. And... Uh, and freeze to death. Uh, shout out to Looney Politics. Check out their website. Indeed. Uh, and we will see you next time. Bye bye.